Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Read Smart, the official podcast of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction with me, Toby Mundy. I'm the director of the prize and taking over hosting duties today from our usual host, Razia Iqbal. The podcast, as always, is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. The Read Smart podcast explores the world of nonfiction books and the issues surrounding it, as well as providing behind-the-scenes insights into each year's prize journey. For the last 22 years, the Bailey Gifford Prize has rewarded the very best in nonfiction writing, spanning history, current affairs, politics, science, sport, travel, biography, autobiography, and the arts. We'll be announcing the longlist of this year's Bailey Gifford Prize on the 9th of September, the shortlist on the 15th of October, and the winner to a drum roll on the 16th of November. Today, we'll be discussing the vibrant and diverse and sometimes highly polarised American non-fiction publishing scene with two people who I think are visionaries of the Anglophone publishing industry, James Daunt and Morgan Entrican. Both are joining the podcast remotely. James Daunt is the founder of Daunt Books and managing director of Waterstones. Known as the man who saved Waterstones, he rescued Britain's largest bookstore chain from the verge of bankruptcy, steering it back to profitability in 2015. In June 2019, he took on arguably an even bigger challenge when he also became CEO of America's leading bookshop chain, Barnes & Noble, where he's steering the retailer into growth as it emerges from the pandemic. Despite the recent huge challenges, Barnes & Noble sales have risen by 6% since 2019, with book sales up in double digits. The Financial Times has called him the Englishman trying to save American bookstores from Amazon and highlighted his passion for bringing traditional reading back to life by reminding people of the magic and nostalgia of the classic bookshop. In recognition of his transformational success in bookselling, he was elected an honorary fellow of the Royal Society of Literature in 2017. Also joining us today is Morgan Entrykin, the CEO and publisher of one of America's finest and most successful independent publishers, Grove Atlantic. He's one of the major shareholders of the company, which publishes about 120 books a year, ranging from literary fiction to crime fiction, general non-fiction, current affairs, history, biography and poetry. In 2015, Morgan launched the Literary Hub, a website that features original content from over 250 partners, including publishers large and small, literary journals, not-for-profits and booksellers. Lit Hub now has over 5 million visitors a month. In 2017, Morgan was awarded the prestigious Centre for Fiction Medal for Editorial Excellence, previously known as the Maxwell E. Perkins Award, which honours the work of a publishing professional who over the course of his or her career has discovered, nurtured and championed writers of fiction in the United States. James, Morgan, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. Um, I'd like to start, James, if I may, with you. How has the pandemic been for you? I touched upon it in my introduction, but it would be interesting to hear more. I think it's been a, a, a tale of, of well, of, of, a, of a few um, parts. Um, the initial um, entry into the pandemic was traumatic. We had all of our stores closed um, on both sides of the Atlantic, um, and a, a, a sort of slew and, and into online, um, which we weren't prepared, you know, frankly, to to deal with. Uh, we, we have distributions and and setups, but that is predominantly aimed at our physical shops, all of which were then closed. Um, so that was an extremely difficult um, period. And we um, buckled down in, in on both sides of the Atlantic, I think, probably with um, 
um, much more sort of activity on the US side where we, we reset our bookshops and did a lot of work whilst they were closed. Uh, in, in the UK, where all our booksellers uh, went uh, home and uh, unfortunately were on furlough. Um, but but uh, sort of within about two, three months, um, we could see one that we were getting to grips with online. Second, that reading was uh, was um, increasing, that, that people were looking to books at this time and, and that our sales were um, really quite strong and that uh, with the prospect of our shops reopening uh, that we we might actually enjoy a, a benefit from this awful episode uh, and indeed in the US once the stores were open uh, we've been um, really having wonderful sales and uh, albeit continuing to deal with the, the difficulties of social distancing and safe working and all the rest but but generally it's been very positive you know once we got through those first few months. And did you find a, a sort of residual, deep residual loyalty to Barnes and Noble uh, during this crisis um, amongst amongst ordinary consumers? I think um, I think book readers are generally quite promiscuous, um, and um, I think they will be sort of loyal to you for as, as long as it's convenient to be. But but we were busy fluttering our eyelashes and. Um, I think we we people a lot of people came back to us actually, um, and, and certainly a lot of people came back to to reading and, and perhaps even to physical books more than might have been anticipated. So yes, we we found it a very positive experience. And, and Morgan, how's the last eighteen months or so been been for Grove Atlantic? Well, um, you know, it, we, it was traumatic. Um, First of all, I personally got COVID very badly, so unfortunately, I I I I I, I got through it quickly, um, but then had to just deal with handling the crisis and you know the payroll protection plan loans, et cetera, et cetera. We did not move a lot of books out of the spring or early summer. We, we moved a couple of titles, um, and I think that looking back on that decision. I, 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 I think it cut both ways and that, that so many books were moved, there was less competition. Um, so we got some selections and some coverage and, and pro, a, a profiled some books in ways we might not have been able to. But on the other hand, it was very challenging to get new books, particularly nonfiction books, started. Um, it was we 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 and, you know, for instance, a, a book we had Writers and Lovers by Lily King. She had 30 cities. Uh, 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 scheduled, she did three of them and then had to cancel them. Um, Helen McDonald's Vesper Flights, which we published in, in in August, she was coming over for eight weeks and doing, I think, 25 or 30 appearances. And all of it was then done virtual. So, um, but that said, I agree with James, people came back to books in a way. And I think, you know, there's only so much screen time you can spend. And I also agree with him that physical books, people wanted to go, came back to physical books in a way. So, um, you know, we ended up having one of our best years. That was partly because Shuggy Bain, which we published, won the Booker Prize. And then we we had some good, strong uh, uh, titles that had some good luck. But, uh, uh, you know, it was also just the market conditions were that we did not the, 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 the sales didn't erode at the level that I thought they were going to. Hmm. Interesting. Well, that's that's wonderful to hear. I mean, we're a nonfiction. This is a nonfiction prize and a nonfiction podcast. I mean, can you, is it possible, uh, Morgan, to generalize about what's what subject areas are hot in U.S. quality nonfiction at the moment? What kind of submissions you, you're getting and hearing about? Well, um, obviously, you know, after the race and gender issues, intersectionality. I mean, that that to me, climate change. Um, you know, those issues seem to be the issues of the moment right now, and general discourse of of 
Western societies. Um, you know, we had a slightly controversial president, if you recall, from 2016 to 2020. I think I read something about him, yeah. And, um, so uh, we had a lot of books about him. Um, and, uh, you know, they don't seem to have gone away and that we've had a few more come out this summer, uh, all of which are pretty interesting. Um, and uh, but it, it the shift, it almost just I think the whole country, in fact, the whole world seems to have heaved a sigh of relief um, after January 6th slash 7th, when um, uh, Joseph Joe Biden was certified as president and when he took office three weeks later. And, you know, as as my 15 year old said, now we're just back to the normal old boring politicians. Um, you know, now that said, we've got the Delta variant, we've got Afghanistan, we've got forest fires, we've got the flooding from Ida, we've got the uh, voter suppression acts going on around the country. We have the decision the Supreme Court made yesterday about this crazy abortion thing in Texas where you can have your neighbor arrested. I mean, it's just, so we still got some crazy stuff and some polarized stuff going on. I don't think political books are going to go away, but I would say, you know, the big issues now, the stuff that we see the most of are around those race, gender, intersectionality. I mean, recovered history, I think, is a big topic. It's something that I'm focused on some. We, uh, our, our, our book, Wilmington's Lie, won the Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction. And that was a book about um, what was historically called the race riots in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898, that in fact was an organized white supremacy takeover of a mixed race government, a very successful mixed race government in a successful mixed race city. So, you know, David Vann's uh, Children to, uh, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon from a few years ago about the stealing the uh, mineral and property rights from Native Americans in Oklahoma. I think there will be more of that. There are books on Tulsa coming there. Yeah. I think we're taking a look again, you know, and trying to, to, to the reckoning that's going on all over the world for, for, uh, uh, centuries of of injustice towards uh, people of color. So, James, you famously keep a very close eye on the details of what's selling in your bookstores. Is this does, does, does Morgan's description is but is that borne out within within your shops in America? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's been an extraordinary period, um, as as Morgan has, has articulated, um, with these sort of huge currents flowing through. Um, uh, 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 society and that's been reflected in in the publishing and how people inform themselves and that has certainly resulted i think in in extraordinary um, robust sales um that on both sides of of the divides um that and, and i think you know as a, as a national bookseller um in, in all markets I, I i suppose we've found ourselves sort of slightly scratching heads occasionally as you see these um uh, these polarized positions at all points and and books that then reflect both sides um, and you know that one of our one of our duties is clearly to to educate and and make books available but but sometimes one does scratch one's head a little over what we're selling enormously um, when when perhaps the politics look uh, questionable well, I, well, I want to come back to that a little, if I may. But I mean, is 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 book selling different in red states and blue states for, for Barnes and Noble? Certainly, and what sells is very, very different. And um, we, as as a bookseller, obviously need to reflect the interests of the communities in which we reside. Uh, yes, red and blue read very differently, um, inform themselves very differently. And have have has has the does the chain is it is it easier is it easy to find booksellers to to uh, to meet those different readerships? 
I think we're very professional in how we do it. Uh, inevitably, um, booksellers probably sort of inclined to a, um, a, a, a kinder, um, more in, uh, embracing side of, of the divides um, for themselves, uh, undoubtedly. Um, but but we are there to to sell books to our that customers wish to see. Um, it, it causes us a certain amount of um, uh, spotlighting uh, and and criticism, but I think we do a, do an honest and good job at it. So, so Morgan, I see that there are still two Trump books, uh, depending on your definition, but two explicit Trump books in the current New York Times hardback nonfiction list. Um, I've heard it said by more than one American publisher that Trump may have been very bad for America and the world, but he was great for the finances of CNN, the New York Times, and New York publishing. Is that fair, do you think? Um, I, I Probably, you know. Um, I, I don't know the financing of Fox News or CNN, but it seemed like they had more viewership. It seemed like all you were doing every morning was going and seeing what next crazy thing was happening out of the White House and out of Washington. Um, and it's a relief to not have to pay such close attention. But um, And I think, yeah, there were a lot of books that sold very well. I mean, uh, uh, Michael Wolf's book, Fire and Fury, I think was, you know, maybe the fastest selling book or, uh, or close to, you know, of that any of us could remember. And then every time you thought, well, God, we've really gone to that well a lot, you know, with, and, and yet there, the next one would come the, the, I think, uh, Mary Trump's, I mean, just, you know, you know, you, we all know what they were. Um, and I think now what's happening, it seems as if we're taking a, a kind of, retrospective look at the last year and what went on. And, and that's what some of these latest books are by Lanigan Rucker and Michael Bender and uh, again, Michael Wolf. So uh, there, there's interest, uh, and continued interest. The, the current list is also quite conservative, isn't it? With Mark Levin's American Marxism at number one, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy's book on woke capitalism up there, Tucker Carlson in the number three, I think. I mean, so and yet New York publishing seems broadly to the left of the American public. I mean, is that a is that a fair observation, Morgan? And, and does it matter? I mean, is, is is US publishing too New York centric, do you think? You're not a New Yorker, a native New Yorker, of course. No, I'm not. And 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 I do think that it's a little New York centric, um, but they all have conservative imprints. And then you have Ragnary. And, and so I think, you know, all the reasonable voices get heard. I think that they do draw the line on on, you know, that fellow Milo, whose last name I can't remember, um, that was just, you know, whose book was uh, canceled by Simon and Schuster. And, you know, that, that there's some very, very extreme versions of both from the left and from the right, but more from the right, that the big five won't won't publish. But mm-hmm. um, uh, even though those guys, though, they can self-publish. I mean, it, it's it's um, and and the conservatives really buy books. You know, they're the the, the they seem to be very loyal and very passionate about the issues and particularly about their personalities. You know, in the old days, Rush Limbaugh, Bill O'Reilly, now Tucker, you know, whoever's the, the newest one on the block. But uh, And t- turning to another non-native New Yorker, I mean, James, do, do you find American publishing is too New York centric or do you think it's sort of getting the balance about right? I think there's a balance. And I think actually also it's very easy to be, um, yeah, the, 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 you know, at the moment, American Marxism and and, and the like to, to to take all of the the slots. But actually, when we look at our own bestseller list, um, you know, we we had this curious little book called World of Wonders, which is a very very gentle um, little sort of tale published by tiny little publisher Milkweed, and that was our best selling nonfiction book. Um, 
of the year and still I think if we clicked in there we'd see it sitting ahead of these political books so people are looking also for for more gentle to looking for nature looking to um sort of compassion and memoirs or um writings about it so i, I think it's you know, we, we 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 sometimes can get sucked into this overemphasis on the political yes of course i mean turning away from the political stuff uh, james to start with I'm, I'm always struck by how upmarket the new york times non-fiction bestseller list is particularly in paperback compared to the uk does that does that seem does that strike you as well i'm, I'm going to ask morgan the same question actually because he knows a great deal about british publishing as well but it seems to me that it's it's a much more it's the the, the u.s bestseller list for non-fiction are generally in aggregate uh, uh, more more upmarket if you like i think also that there's a longer life um i i think the Perhaps that's a, a, a little bit because the bookstores are different. There's, they're, they're bigger. Um, they have much more space and attention devoted to hardcovers in particular. And, and I think they allow books to have a, a proper presence and a proper visibility. Um, and, you know, frankly, I, I think good books rise and stay longer uh, in, in the in the commercial sense but also in what, what people are buying than they do in the united kingdom and i think it's one of the, the really nice and, and and positive things about book selling in the in the u.s guns germs and steel was famously a paperback bestseller for i can't remember how long years i think wasn't it morgan morgan can you account for that i mean do you recognize that description yeah i mean i i i agree and i agree with what james was saying and i i hadn't really thought about it about the size of the bookstores but that does seem to make sense and I do think that good books uh, and quality uh, nonfiction lasts a long time and people come to it. And uh, so it, it's 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 good to see. And Morgan, do you think that nonfiction has taken a, a more novelistic turn? I mean, narrative nonfiction has always been with us, but it seems particularly in paperback to be to rise and rise. And you've always published in that area very successfully as well. I mean, is, is something going on in that space, do you think? Um I don't know if I see it any more of it than than in the past. I think one of the things is is that the long form journalism in magazines has has disappeared as magazines audiences have shrunk, so that you don't have the you know the big contracted writers at Vanity Fair or or you know Sports Illustrated or Esquire or um, the New Yorker has cut back some. They still probably have more than anyone else, but the Atlantic or Harper's. So some of that probably has gravitated towards books. And, and maybe people are doing what might have been a 10,000, 12,000 word magazine piece as a 40,000, 60,000 word book a little bit more. But, you know, it's been around for 30, 40, 50 years of, of that good, strong, solid narrative journalism, you know, coming out of the new journalism movement of the 60s and early 70s. And um, but it's great because, um, you know, I enjoy reading it, enjoy publishing it. It's expensive. You've got to fund the writers. And so that's a bit of a challenge, particularly if you're, you know, not part of a multi-billion dollar uh, media company. But, um, you know, but we, we, we find a way. And what makes, what, what, can, you, can you characterize what makes great narrative nonfiction? I mean, it's on the face of it a banal question, but the, it's an interesting, the nuances of the question may be interesting. Maybe. I mean, a good story, great reporting and good writing. And, and I think a good solid architecture, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that happens when I start to work with uh, a, uh, someone who's writing, who's been writing for magazines, Sophie Roberts, for instance, James, you know, is a mutual friend of ours who wrote uh, Lost Pianos of Siberia, wonderful travel writer, very established, you know, very successful. And she did her first book about traveling around Siberia, 
looking for pianos. And um, when the first draft of that book, um, she kept thinking that she couldn't go off on tangents and she couldn't do backstory. She couldn't do history. And I said, no, 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 that's what a book is about. You know, you, it's not a magazine. They're not going to turn the page and go on to the next article. You've got them. They bought the book and they're reading it. So, you know, uh, as long as you suck them in in the at early goings, then uh, you can go off on those tangents. And that richness and, and depth and resonance and layering is what good, solid narrative nonfiction is about. And um, so, uh, you know, I think it's all those things. It, it's it's a combination. And, you know, I just did a book with Julie Cavanaugh called The Irish Assassins that picked up a project that her father, her late father, had started in the 60s about the Phoenix Park murders. And again, Julie had not written, she's mainly a biographer, had not written that kind of a book. And I sent her to Eric Larson because I said, you know, Eric Larson is the perfect model for The Devil in the White City and all the other great books that he's done. And taking a an incident that may have been covered a little bit, but people might not know fully about, and then try to, you know, weave a bigger tale with more context and following some of the, the lesser known figures, et cetera. So I think, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's something you can learn how to do it if you've got those skills of reporting and researching and writing, but um, it, it's, it's not necessarily obvious or simple. And so would it, would it be fair to say that these are stories that are gripping in and of themselves, but they also shine a sort of light on something larger, much larger, very often? As well. Yeah, I, I think, you know, that, that, that you, you that's ideally is what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, and James, is this an area that you read in? I mean, are you, are you an enthusiastic reader of narrative nonfiction? Um, certainly. And I, and I think it is where we look also for uh, the idiosyncratic and commercially for bestsellers. And I find um, I'm sitting here now with a with a pile of, of proofs in front of me, and you know one of the ones that I've tagged is um, Sarah Rules, the, the the playwright, has has a, a, a nonfiction called Smile, which is is you know, her her personal story, but again, as, as to, to, to Norman points, sort of how how does it um, uh, illuminate a, a wider um, experience at the moment and um, I, I think these are the books that we're looking for commercially to be the big successes. And did, did, is your is your sense? And I don't I don't have any idea what the answer to this question is. But is your sense that literary fiction is slightly in retreat, and that people who maybe once used to read literary fiction are now reading more quality nonfiction, particularly if, when it has a very strong character, very strong story, and very strong characters and things like that? I'm, I'm a great um, traditionalist, and I sort of always feel over the thirty odd years that I've um, been a bookseller that, that you know the pendulum gently swings in one direction and then comes back, um, and that, that at the end of the day, good reading um, and good writing um, uh, are, are a perfect marriage, and we're always looking for quality. Um, but I think there are things going on at the moment. I think indeed um, how people are listening to books has has completely changed. They're listening to podcasts like this. They're, they're clearly listening uh, to audiobooks as well, and uh, significantly uh, in nonfiction. So I, I think that's that's also perhaps sort of changed the the way in which people are, are approaching books. And have those new those new things like podcasts, James, affected the way that you and your booksellers operate? It's certainly changed the way in which we understand what our customers might want to read. Um, that was a much simpler thing in the past. You know, you opened the newspaper and saw saw what was what was reviewed and and perhaps kept a, a close eye on 
on the radio and then you were done. Uh, that's uh, very, very far from the case at the moment. And, and we're, we're having to be attuned to uh, every form of social media, but also to, to how audio is working and podcasts and all the rest. And, and Morgan, you, of course, um, launched Lit- Literary Hub, um, uh, a website that the Bailey Gifford Prize uh, uh, has a close collaboration with and we're very happy about. I mean, tell us a little bit about the story of where that came from. Well, that came from watching uh, three of the big six at the time spend $20 million and fail on bookish. And um, and then came from the idea that there was so much literary content being produced, but it was scattered so widely that if there was a neutral platform created to bring it all together, it would benefit us all. And um, I went around and talked to my friends at, at the big five and told them the idea because the key that what you have to solve is how can you create a robust enough uh, flow of content um, in any kind of vaguely, you know, uh, economically rational way. And um, so the thing was, what I came up with was this, the idea that it was already out there, just let's just bring it all together. And also what I wanted to do and from the beginning and every digital person that I talked to said, this is crazy as I would, you know, have a, a links out to other uh, interesting pieces from all across the web uh, that were writing about books. And, you know, that was breaking the first rule of once somebody comes to your site, don't send them away. And I said, no, no, but that's not what this site is about. So um, I think it's been very successful because people, they want help. And, and I think that, you know, it's one of the things that James has recognized is what he has to leverage is the expertise of thousands of great booksellers. And um, what, what Literary Hub was about was trying to help help people make decisions and help curation and also help discovery because there's too much information and there are too many books. And, and, you know, if you can, can help direct people towards good books, um, I think that, that it's a service that people appreciate and come to. So um, Literary Hub has been really quite honestly successful beyond what I ever even really imagined could be. And how are certain how are certain categories f- faring, James, in your stores? I mean, how how does I mean there was a huge phenomenon that was known as smart books, wasn't there? Which I suppose was pioneered by people like Malcolm Gladwell and others. Um, how how are, uh, some categories presumably go up and some categories go down. Do you have any sort of insights into into categories that are growing and categories that aren't in, in, in across your stores? I think it's very much as, as Morgan was saying at the outset, um, we're seeing a lot of interest in um, issues around race, gender, um, uh, identity, um, but also um, a, a, a strong yearning, it appears, for books that talk about and give insight into kindness and compassion, um, as well as the, the more traditional areas of, of politics and history. and. Um, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're adjusting slightly our space. I think it's in other areas of the, the store that we're seeing much bigger shifts. Um, the, the, the real thing that's um, really transformed over the last uh, two years has been a further engagement amongst young adults um, in our shops. And uh, we've had to really cater to that just simply for, for the sheer number of them that they're in and they're interested in manga, they're interested in graphic novels, um, as well as young adult um, fiction. Um, and they do have also a clear interest in uh, the issues, again, race, identity, um, 
environment. Um, and I, I think it's kind of sort of thrilling, really, that you can have a, a store full of teenagers, young adults you know, in their early 20s in a store, not buying so much, but, but buying a bit, but there reading, leafing, talking uh, about ideas and about books. Yeah. And is it is it is it is it the case that the sort of self help category is expanding and growing and as well? Um, certainly in the UK, I think it's possible to make the case that certain kinds of popular science books are now bleeding into uh, upmarket self help publishing. Does that does that seem right? Yes, I think it does, and I think there's some clever publishing going on to uh, meet that demand. Um, it, it's clear that society is going through. Um, sort of unique challenges at the moment, and and the book, the publisher is always there to to tap into that and meet that uh, expectation, and and of course booksellers to to try and um, curate to it and and uh, uh, exploit is the wrong word, but but meet that demand. Absolutely, and and um, what are the biggest differences in running a nationwide book chain? apart from obviously sheer scale in the US compared to the UK? Obviously, the US is a gigantic country compared to Britain, but what are, what are the other differences? There are those sort of technical things of scale and logistics and, and boring things like that. But at the end of the day, um, I, I have thus far perceived, and, and I get sort of slightly uh, eyebrows raised to me, but I really haven't seen any difference essentially between the way um, US and, and UK book buyers approach their stores, which is to say each community is a little different from the other, um, and that following the same principle of trusting booksellers in stores to curate and understand what those customers want, um, you will create, you will have better bookstores which will sell more books um, in terms of um, how you display books, the quantities of them and, and the ranges. Um, the, the big difference there is a, a, a Typical Barnes & Noble is 25,000 square feet and a typical Waterstones is 8,000 square feet. Uh, you can fit an awful lot more into a Barnes & Noble. And yeah, frankly, for a bookseller, that's a joy. Hmm. And Morgan, are you surprised over looking back over your career that the hardcover the hardcover book has held up as well as it has? I mean, hard quality, hardcover nonfiction is, appears on the face of it to be doing incredibly well, both in America and in Britain. Well... I don't know if I'm surprised. I mean, um, it 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 uh, it's a format that works. It's a it, and people like it, you know. And um, I think every time it's been challenged by, gosh, I'm old enough to remember the CD-ROM coming in and people trying to persuade me that I should get into that business. And I'm like, going, I don't think so. And then, of course, when you know the eBooks come around and I'm on some panel and people are predicting it'll be 50% by this year or 75% by that year, and well, I'm not so sure in my area it will be, but um, you know, it, it, it's 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 a pleasure to hold in the hand. And um, you know, I think the the one thing that we've seen here that I see a slight difference in the UK. I'm not quite fluent enough in the UK market to know is that the the paperbacks, the trade paperback uh, format, seems to have eroded some from the ebook. So that we see the first outing, we sell hardcovers and ebooks, and it's harder to get the traction on the paperbacks. Um, nine months or 12 months later. So that's the slight difference that I see, that people will go ahead and buy the hardcover, and particularly because of the deep discounting that happens on with the online retailers and some of the big box stores, not that we do a lot at the big box retailers, but um, 
Uh, I think that that that's one of the changes I've seen in the last eight or 10 years. But um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's physical books are great things. And um, it's a joy to hear James talking about all the young people reading them. And uh, I see my teenager reading them and his friends reading them. And, uh, uh, you know, it's not you can't spend all your life on a screen. It's your experience, James, that um, uh, young people, teenagers, older teenagers are not really buying are not really into ebooks in the same way they, uh, they they don't appear to be um though i i think no doubt sort of ebooks will 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 have a place and um you know we, we've got interesting challenges at the moment with um print capacities and distribution and the rest and i'm sure if you're desperate to read the, the next installment or the latest uh, and literally the physical book is not available in your local bookshop or online then you're going to resort to um, to, to ebooks and we've seen that with mango where um, that there are considerable printing difficulties and and our ebook volumes have, have shot up uh, in consequence but i think that um, they clearly seem to prefer the physical and, and we did a fascinating thing with uh, with nook where we can see obviously the the e purchases where we 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 just sent out a, a, a simple offer to people who bought the ebook to say you know that the the hardcover is now back um, and had an astonishing um, take up of that offer, uh, which is clearly people wanting a physical book of something they'd already read. Hmm. Wow, um, that's really interesting. Um, Morgan, do you want to come in there, or are you? No, no, I just am impressed. That's encouraging. <laughs> What's um a couple of other things, and then we're gonna we're running out of time. Time is flying past. What's happening right now with celebrity publishing in in the United States? And I, I know Morgan, you haven't done very much celebrity publishing over your distinguished career, but you're a seasoned observer of the market. I mean, do you, it seemed to peak a while ago, whereas the Brits, I think, seem to be more uh, seem to keep the faith with celebrity publishing for longer. Does that seem right? I, I'm not a great commenter. I mean, to me, that celebrity, I love the late Roger Strauss's, the you know, founder of Farrar Strauss and Joe's distinguished imprint in the US, where what he said, oh, those are ooks, not quite books. And, um, it, you know, that, that kind of celebrity book that is really almost merchandising like a T-shirt would be, that kind of publishing seems to have, I don't know, disappeared a bit. But um, uh, I don't, I don't. I'm not fluent enough in that area to really be uh, someone to ask a, to, to be very knowledgeable to, about it. Maybe we should ask a bookseller, James. What, what's what's your take on this? Uh, yeah, I mean, every time you think it's gone away, <laughs> it's sort of <laughs> up. And, uh, and and to be honest, my bank manager never minds when that's the case. Um, so I mean, there's there's some pretty good celebrity publishing that goes on, um, and and some that's less. The the it, risks that publishers take around it seem utterly insane to me uh given given the, the curious vagaries um but i it, it definitely will not not have completely disappeared well and they're, they're able to leverage their brand as i think the young people call it now and they have these incredible you know platforms with however many tens of millions of you know social media followers so that they enter the market with you know an incredible uh, uh, sort of head start. So that, that kind of celebrity publishing, I think, really is the, the merchandising. You know, I mean, we do like Gabriel Byrne's memoir, which is beautiful writing, and, and, and it's, not, it's not that kind of celebrity publishing. We, we've, had, we've had some wonderful car crashes recently, and you do just think, oh, my Lord, <laughs> you piled up your store to the gunnels and not a single one fell. 
Any any that you can <laughs> any that you can. Tell <laughs> I, would, I would prefer not to comment. Uh, <laughs> your prerogative, I think. Um, so we're coming we're coming to a close. I mean, how does how does uh, Christmas look, James, as you go into the fall and and Christmas season? I, I don't want to tempt fate, but it I really can't remember sort of the stars colliding in, in quite so positive a way. Um, we've got sort of almost irrational exuberance amongst people in terms of, you know, they, they were denied last Christmas. They want to celebrate. They want to um, to, to exchange gifts. Um, they're reading more than they've ever done. Books are um, absolutely front and centre. Um, we got wonderful publishing, really sort of big, big names coming through. Um, quirky books, beautiful books coming through. I'm just sort of, I'm looking at one. Nina Simone's Gum um, by Warren Ellis. Look at it. I mean, just pick it up. It's the most fabulous physical thing as well as a, a, a wonderful premise for a book. Um, and, and these are things we're going to sell really lots of. So I'm feeling um, uh, really buoyant. I think it's going to be a, a, a fantastic Christmas. And Morgan, does a, does a publisher like Grove Atlantic focus more on non-fiction in in this season or are you still well we published we publish a great military historian james holland and we have great success we've got his his brothers in arms that transworld is doing in the uk coming um i've got a fantastic oral history from uh uh mark myers who writes the uh anatomy of a song column for the wall street journal where he's done uh oral history of of the rock concert from the 1950s up to the mid 80s and it's just for those of us who are of a certain age, a wonderful revisiting of our youth. We have a contest going with booksellers and librarians of, you know, your first concert or your most memorial concert, uh, most memorable concert. And, um, but, you know, otherwise we've got really nice fiction coming, the small things like these, the Irish writer Claire King and the Faber's doing. It's an absolute gem of a book. Um, and, and we don't do big kind of uh, illustrated, gifty sort of nonfiction. So that's not really our area, but um, uh, but you know we're excited about what we've got coming and excited about the fact that the market seems to now be back. You know we still are facing um, limited travel and and limited uh, events, which um, we're still an old fashioned publisher and like sending the authors out on the road to visit the booksellers and to to the lecture series in the universities. And so um, I'll I'll really be happier. I'll be happy when that is. Uh, back to normal next year. And finally, my final question for both of you, really, in a, a brief, big question for, with a brief answer, if, if you don't mind, is, uh, you know, if you look five or 10 years into the future at either Grove Atlantic or at Barnes & Noble, what do, what, what do you see? What, what do you see when you look ahead, James? I think we will have a, hopefully, an equilibrium that I feel we're more or less in at the moment of um, a large internet player, these bigger publishers, giant um, chain booksellers, um, but coming always coming up, independence, be it in publishing, be it in bookselling, hopefully um, also on, in the online sphere uh, to keep us all honest, uh, those of us who are on, on the, in those larger um, camps. Um, and I think that that refreshing um, and sort of health of the market is essential. And yeah, at the moment, I, I think everything is set fair uh, for that sort of equilibrium to be preserved and and above all for people to continue um, reading and buying physical books. And Morgan? Well, I would say uh, being that I'm 66, 10 years out might be right at the edge of my working life. But um, uh, what my goal is and what I see happening is, is that the consolidation on the side of the corporate publishers um, 
is making more opportunity available for uh, independent publishing and the launching of imprints like Spiegel and Growl, uh, the continuing success of Grove Atlantic. We have more opportunity now for uh, significant authors coming our way and, and uh, you know, uh, because we're doing a kind of artisanal publishing and, and the big, the big four or big five soon to be four, they still have imprints that do fantastic publishing, but it's just a different experience. And I think authors and agents really enjoy it. And, and so I'm hopeful that Grove Atlantic will, will, you know, continue well beyond my, my working life. And uh, I think, you know, given the fact that we have such a strong backlist catalog, uh, we've got the, the stability to do that. So, but I think there are going to be many hybrid forms of publishing. I think they're going to be, um, it's going to be exciting and there's going to be a lot of opportunity. And, uh, but I also still believe that good books rise to the surface, as James said. So that's what I hammer home to my colleagues and my young people every day is focus on excellence, on excellence, because uh, in the long haul, it will win. You may be frustrated for a while and there may be examples where it doesn't, but um, people like good books and good good writing. Hmm. Optimism and honesty and excellence. Um, that's all we have time for on this episode. Thank you so much for joining us, James and Morgan. I know how busy you both are. Thank you once again also to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their generous support of this podcast. Do make sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at BG Prize for all the latest on future episodes and news regarding the prize. You can also sign up for our newsletter through the website for updates straight into your inbox. In the meantime, see you all next time. Read Smart, the Baby Gifford Prize for non-fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation and produced by Four Communications. <laughs>